0: Okay, let's read our passage together, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. Paul writing of course Galatians said, "But when Cephas came to Antioch, uh, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned." Now, over and over again in the letter, Paul is referring to Peter as Cephas. That's uh, Je- that's the name that Jesus gave to Peter. It's the it's the Aramaic version of Peter, and so when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, "I call you Peter," he would have said, "I call you Cephas." The Aramaic version. So uh, that's what Peter's referring, or Paul's referring to. When I came to Cephas, when when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, verse twelve, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Lord, we come to you this morning and pray that you'd speak to us from your word. Help us, Lord, if we're believers today, to continually uh, reassess our lives, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our deeds, uh, to, to make sure that they're in line with the gospel. And when they're not, uh, we pray, Lord, that we'd be reminded of the truth of the gospel and brought back into a line with it. And so, Lord, we pray for these things. We thank you for this passage and pray that you'd speak to us from it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. 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 I've been saying to you that here in the book of Galatians, Paul's aim is that we would live a life of flight, that we would take off, that we would engage in the love and the freedom that God has designed for us to live. But what Paul knew is that in order for us to live that brand of life, to be so set free that we're able to be free from even our own flesh and love one another, the gospel message is required. It's the gospel, a proper appreciation for, love for, and adoration of the gospel that will get us to that place. But as Paul wrote to the Galatian church, They were in danger of destroying the gospel message by adding to the gospel message. So he wrote this letter as a way to defend the precious message of the gospel of grace. Now, because Paul was the one who initially brought the gospel to the region of Galatia, He knew that to defend the gospel, he first needed to defend himself and his apostolic ministry. And that's really what the first couple of chapters of the book of Galatians are all about. And in defending himself, uh, we've discovered that Paul began recounting different events in his early life in Christ. At the end of chapter 1 and at the end of chapter 2, Paul recounted two trips that he took to Jerusalem. Um, And you can nod your head like, yeah, I remember this. The last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about this. And on these two separate trips to Jerusalem, they were both very peaceful. And when he met with the apostles in Jerusalem, especially Peter and James, uh, they affirmed, confirmed the message of the gospel of grace that Peter preached. But this third trip that we just read about, in Galatians 2, to 16, this third encounter uh, was not as peaceful as the first two encounters in Jerusalem. Uh, this third encounter, according to Paul, took place not in Jerusalem, but it took place in Antioch. A, a Gentile church was there in Antioch. Antioch was an important city, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and Alexandria. And because it was located only 300 miles north of Jerusalem, when persecution began to hit the church in Jerusalem, many Jewish believers fled for safety up into the city of Antioch because there was a large Jewish population there. And because they had the gospel inside of them, the gospel began to spread like wildfire throughout Antioch. It actually says in Acts chapter 11 that when Barnabas went to Antioch, what he saw was the grace of God. It was just a beautiful church. As I said in previous studies, it was the place where Christians were first called Christians because they were acting like Jesus. God was just doing a beautiful work in that place. Eventually, Barnabas went and got Paul to help him with the work in Antioch. But in this passage, what we learn is that eventually, and we don't know when, Peter or Cephas came to visit that church in Antioch. And at first, Peter's presence only added to the beauty of what God was doing in that city. Uh, He regularly, it says in verse 12, ate with the Gentiles in that church. There was this harmony of different cultures and customs and backgrounds all coming together under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. I think it was a breathtaking and beautiful church. And this man, Peter, the lead apostle, the rock as Jesus spoke of him, a racial and cultural Jew, he was signifying through his actions that the blood of Jesus had united him with all these Gentile brothers and sisters up there in Antioch. As Paul had said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, Jesus had broken down the middle wall of separation and had made a new humanity by his death and burial and resurrection. And as Peter ate with his Gentile brothers and sisters, he was preaching that message. There is a new humanity, Peter was saying, and I and part of it. But Paul tells us in verse 11 that a moment came where he had to oppose Peter to his face because he did something, verse 11, that he says was worthy of condemnation. While he was there and while he was eating with all of these Gentile believers, it says in verse 12 that some men came down from James from Jerusalem. Uh, Paul doesn't say why these men were there, but for whatever the reason they were there, it says in verse 12 that Peter feared the circumcision party. Those are two words I feel should never go together. (laughs) And Peter began to slink back and separate himself from his Gentile friends. And because Peter was a leader, visible, important in the church, his shameful act began to spread like wildfire. And soon the rest of the Jews separated themselves during mealtime and even Barnabas, who was considered a beloved pastor in that church, a friend of that church, even Barnabas, it says in verse 13, was swept up in their hypocrisy. You can only imagine the hurt that these believers in Antioch would have felt, the confusion that these believers in Antioch would have suffered because of Peter and Barnabas' withdrawal from them. The dividing wall of separation that Jesus had destroyed was being rebuilt by these actions. And as you might suspect, Paul could not stand by and let this unfold with no consequence. What he did is he rose up in verse 14 and he rebuked Peter before them all, it says. It was not a private rebuke. I think part of the reason that he did not rebuke him privately is because in addressing Peter publicly, Paul was rebuking everyone who went along with Peter in this hypocrisy. He reminded Peter of the doctrine of justification by faith. It was a doctrine that Peter himself preached and that Peter himself believed, and he wanted to bring Peter back into a life that was in line with the very gospel that he professed. Okay, why include this embarrassing story for Peter in the book of Galatians? Well, Paul has already told us in this letter that if anyone distorts the gospel, they should be cut off. If even an apostle or an angel adds to the message of the gospel, they should be accursed. And when Paul confronted Peter, what he was doing was showing that there is no one that's off limits. There is no one that is above the gospel. Even if we profess the gospel like Peter did, he never wandered from believing the tenets of the gospel Even if we profess the gospel, we must also live by the gospel. And in this moment, Peter did not. And that was Paul's main issue with Peter. He said in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I rebuked Peter before them all. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. Peter, Peter, Peter was a champion of grace. He understood the gospel of grace. Years earlier, Peter was the guy who was on the rooftop of a house in a city called Joppa when he received a vision from God that he was to leave Joppa, go with some men who had come from Caesarea and preach the gospel to a Gentile community of believers, gathered, a Gentile community of people gathered together in the house of a military official named Cornelius. And when, when Peter did that in obedience to the Lord, what he saw was the Holy Spirit come upon these people as they believed the message as he preached it. Seeing that God had accepted these Gentiles, so did Peter, and he began baptizing them right there on the spot. No Judaism required. And when Peter went back to Jerusalem, he defended his actions by saying things like, Acts eleven seventeen. 17, if God gave the same gift of the Holy Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Amen. What I'm trying to show you is that there is nothing in the passage that we just read this morning from Galatians that suggests that Peter changed his mind about any of that. He was not, when he refused to eat with those Gentiles in the church in Antioch, making a theological decision. He had not said to himself, you know that gospel of grace that I saw, that Jesus prepared me for, that I had dreams and visions about, that I had experiences about? I'm rejecting and walking away from that gospel of grace. No, that was not what Peter was doing. Peter was not making a theological decision. He was making an emotional decision. It says in verse 12 that he feared the circumcision party. The fear of man led him to act contrary to his theological convictions, and Paul knew it, and so he reminds Peter of justification by faith. He says, Peter, you need to get back on the path of the gospel. You need to walk in line with the message of the gospel. As Matthew Harmon wrote, the gospel is not merely the way we begin the Christian life. It is the means by which we continue to live the Christian life. It sets out a path for us as believers to walk. All right, so my question today is, how does this passage encourage us today to walk out the gospel? What does it teach us about living in step with the gospel? And I want to show you in Great preacher form, three things from this passage today. The first thing, most significantly, that this passage shows us is that we must, number one, unite over the gospel. We must unite over the gospel. Hear me now, when when Peter acted the way he did, when he separated and began eating with Jews only during the mealtimes at the church there, uh, he united with some people over Judaism, the Jews that were also separating. He united with them over Judaism, which divided him unnecessarily from those who didn't embrace Judaism. He was uniting with some to separate from others. Again, like I've been saying, Peter believed the gospel, but through his actions, Peter was telling a whole church of Gentile Christians that simple faith in Christ was not enough. They needed to add circumcision and they needed to add dietary laws. They needed to become Jewish. And this would have been an intensely discouraging and depressing depressing message for a group of Gentile Christians who were living inside of a Gentile society. The good news that Jesus came to save them was turning into the bad news that they would have to adopt Judaism. And since Peter was important, a heavyweight in the early church, What he was doing was telling the entire future church the exact same thing. You know, when when Peter sat down and freely ate with Gentile believers, he was representing the gospel so well. He was living in line with the gospel of grace. During those meals, Peter was saying, it's the gospel of Christ that unites us. I'm I'm different from these Gentiles. I'm a Jewish man by culture and society, but it is the gospel that brings us together, and that is bigger than any other dividing factor. But once Peter separated, he was communicating, the issue of Judaism is on the same level for me as the gospel, It's just as important, and you cannot be fully accepted by God unless you embrace it. Now, the reality is that we also today might be tempted to get out of line with the gospel with our actions as well. In fact, I wanna suggest to you that the passage is implying that we should be on guard for the inevitable moments that we will get out of step with the gospel. I mean, think about it. If the apostle Peter, who spent three and a half years in the flesh with Jesus, who had many miracles to his name, who received dreams and visions, whom God opened up the scripture to, who actually wrote holy scripture, who witnessed with his own two eyes the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world after the church had been primarily Jewish for about 10 years, if Peter... Could betray the gospel with his actions, then who are we to think, no, surely I would never do such a thing? Okay, if Peter could do it, any of us could do it, is the point of the passage. Like Peter, we might not denounce the core elements of the gospel, we might not denounce the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we should not, with our actions, communicate that one must add anything to faith in Christ. And I think in many facets of life, we have to be on guard against what Peter did. To, as Paul said, live in step with the gospel is to never stray from the straight path of the gospel. But as we're on this path, there are lots of detours that abound, and we have to resist them. For example, to live in step with the gospel, I think, is to avoid classism. The tendency to only be in relationships with people from the same social class. To live in step with the gospel is to resist sectarianism, the tendency to withdraw withdraw into small theological enclaves that agree with even the most minor points of doctrine while rejecting everyone else. To live in step with the gospel is to embrace different personality types, believing that Jesus loves and has created everyone. To live in step with the gospel is to avoid dividing over the spectrum of political persuasions throughout the world today, knowing that we should not put a barrier to entry into Christ's kingdom that Christ himself did not construct. To live in step with the gospel is to avoid relational snobbery, the tendency to spend time only with people who are easy for you to be around. <laughs> to live in step with the gospel is to appreciate people from every generation. Because you recognize that your generation's values and norms are just that, just yours, but they're subservient to the supremacy of the gospel. And to live in step with the gospel destroys racism, blatantly racist attitudes or the soft racism of nodding at racial stereotypes behind closed doors. Because what the gospel does is add to Genesis, which tells us we're all made in the image of God, by also with the gospel, putting us all on the same level before God. So we must be careful not to communicate through our words or our actions that to be a real Christian approved by God, you have to be of a certain class, sect, personality, political persuasion, social skill, generational value system, race, or anything else. And even if we wouldn't say such a thing with our words, we have to make sure that we're not saying such a thing with our actions, which is what Peter was doing. Peter would only eat with those who were submitted to Judaism. And to eat was to commune with someone, to fellowship with someone. So if we will only commune and fellowship with someone who is of a certain class, sect, personality, political persuasion, social skill, generational value system or race, what are we communicating about the gospel? Our actions matter. I'm I'm sure you've heard about the recent rise in popularity of the sport pickleball. You guys heard about this? People that love pickleball, they really love pickleball. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but it's a bit like tennis, but quite different. And apparently, a lot of laid-back people like this sport. So much so that I've heard that when someone is too argumentative or too aggressive or too competitive when playing pickleball, the other people that are there will say, hey, you need to chill out. You're being a little tennis about it. (laughs) It's kind of their thing. It's their way of calling someone out for losing the big picture and becoming a bit too intense. And when it comes to secondary matters we have to keep them in that secondary place the moment we become too tennis about our secondary things we've given the impression that they are on the level with the gospel meaning we are out of step with the gospel as john stott wrote when the issue between us is trivial we must be as pliable as possible But when the truth of the gospel is at stake, we must stand our ground. Well said. All right, so the passage shows us that we must unite over the gospel. But the second thing I want to show you is that we must be motivated by the gospel. We must be motivated, number two, by the gospel. Uh, Peter was motivated when he made this mistake, when he feared the circumcision party, when he did these things. He, He was motivated by fear. Uh, He was motivated by the fear of these people who probably actually weren't even there. It was probably just the fear of the circumcision party back in Jerusalem that he was worried they would hear about his actions. But when Paul confronted Peter, uh, you have to notice that he didn't try to shift Peter's motivation to something like shame or embarrassment or anger. Uh, he, He didn't come to Peter and say, Peter, you you should be ashamed of yourself. What kind of Christian are you? Uh, You're a terrible person. You disgust me. You know, that's not the way that Paul treated Peter. He didn't merely point out that Peter was breaking the rules, even though Peter was definitely breaking the rules. But instead, he pointed out that Peter had forgotten the gospel. He forgot who he was. He reminded Peter of what the gospel had done to him. He said in verse 14, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you've been eating with these people all the way up until these other guys got here. You've been living like a Gentile. You've been set free. If that's what the gospel has done to you, how can you force, he said in verse 14, the Gentiles to live like Jews? Then he said in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed. Notice how Paul says we over and over again. He was reminding Peter of what he'd been, he was reminding Peter of what he would believed and how the gospel had set him free from the law. Peter, this is something that we believe. I know you believe these things. Paul reminded Peter of who he was and what he believed. And this is a far better form of motivation than manipulation Anger, threats, or shame. When when we're reminded of who we are in Christ, when we're reminded of the riches that we have in Christ and the destiny that is ours in Christ, we're elevated to a better form of motivation. I recently heard from uh, our beloved Denise Buck, who uh, is on staff here at the church, Pastor Jeff's wife, and this last year suffered a very scary health Uh, scare that we all were praying for her about. And uh, she was far from home, uh, near her children in the Atlanta area, and had to be hospitalized for a long period of time. And recently, she shared her story uh, with our staff. And uh, she said that, you know, because I was so far away, lots of people from here, they were sending me flowers to my hospital room. And it got a little bit over the top you know, where every time the nurses were coming in, they had to kind of rearrange the room to find space for all of these flowers. And she said, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but I began noticing that the more flowers I got, the better medical attention and care I was receiving. She said, I don't know if it's true or not, but it just felt to me like they were all saying to themselves, there's a lot of people that love this lady. We got to Take care of her. There's a lot of people that want her to succeed, that want her to do well, and praise God, she is. I think in a similar way, when we realize how loved we are by Christ, and how loved others are, how precious they are to him, what we're doing is tapping into the best motivation for right living by realizing the position that we have before God because of justification by faith and the position of all others who have believed in Jesus, the way that we treat others improves. Now, this is not, of course, the way that our world or society tries to motivate people. That's done through shame and fear and yelling and anger. But here, the insides are dealt with. The gospel motivates I heard about a mom who uh, her teenage son was playing basketball out in their family driveway and he lost his contact lens while playing uh, there. And he came in and he announced to her, he said, mom, I'm so sorry, I lost my contact lens and I looked for it everywhere out there, but I couldn't find it. And so she went straight outside and in a couple of minutes, she found it herself. And uh, he asked her, how did you do that? I looked everywhere. How did you find it? And she said to him wisely, she said, well, we weren't looking for the same thing. You were looking for a contact lens. I was looking for $200. <laughs> I thought that's good. And Peter had forgotten the value that God had placed on these Gentile believers. If he just remembered the value. He would have found the motivation to resist his fear of the legalists. And I believe that we need this reminder of the gospel so that we'll be motivated correctly every single day. We have many preachers preaching many messages at us in our modern time, but like ancient Israel, every day we need a fresh supply from the Lord. Ancient Israel, they were given when they wandered in the wilderness. Manna from God every single day. Uh, That was the food, the nourishment that they received for almost 40 years. Uh, They would not receive enough for two days' worth. They couldn't collect two days' worth. They had to go out each morning and get that day's supply. And I believe that each day, we need to reframe our perspective, get in the word alone with God, and be reminded afresh of, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the message that can motivate us the best. Okay, but the last way that I wanna talk to you today about living in line with the gospel is that we have to know something theological. We have to know that justification comes by the gospel. We have to know that justification comes by the gospel. Look at what Paul said in verse 16. He said, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the first time that the word justification is used in Galatians. It's an important word in the book. It's a term that actually comes from the legal world. It's the opposite of condemnation. To be condemned, you're guilty in a court of law, and to be justified, you're declared innocent in that same court of law. Now, in the Bible, justification is used to describe God's once and for all um, action or the experience that you have when you trust in Christ's work instead of your own. God, at that moment when you place your faith in Jesus, deposits Christ's righteousness into your account, which means that he begins to see you just as he sees his son uh, without error, without sin. Without guilt, you've been justified. Uh, I've said this before, but but imagine to understand this concept justification two open documents on your computer screen. One document is the record of your life, uh, everything you've done, and everything that you've ever thought. All right, every sin external and every sin internal. It's probably a document you don't want anybody to read. Then imagine in the other document is the life of Jesus. Every thought that he ever had, every action he ever uh, committed, perfect and pure and righteous. And when you believe in Jesus, it's as if God goes to your document, selects all and deletes, goes to Jesus's document, selects all and copies, and then goes back to your document and pastes the life and righteousness of Jesus into your account. Now, when he opens up your document, if you're a believer in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of his only begotten son. Oh, Nate Holdridge, let's see. Wow, impressive. <laughs> I, I heard an old-timey preacher from a bygone era illustrate justification with a story about a man from England, again, in the in, in, uh, you know, previous generation, who Uh, put his Rolls-Royce on a boat so that he could go on vacation in Europe, kind of tour throughout Europe with his Rolls-Royce. And while touring through Europe, the car abruptly stopped working, so he called the Rolls-Royce people back in England, and they actually flew a mechanic over to where he was, fixed it on the spot, and flew the mechanic back. He was impressed. He continued on with his vacation, but he began wondering what the bill for that was going to be you know, a flight, a mechanic, all the parts. And so when he returned home, he wrote to Rolls-Royce to ask, and they replied with this note. They said, dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a (laughs) Rolls-Royce. They had a reputation to maintain. But what they were saying to him was the record is clean. It's as if nothing happened. And in the eyes of God, if we are completely, since we're completely justified and cleaned and as if nothing ever happened, that's what occurs when we trust in Jesus's work and not our own. There's no record in God's files anywhere that anything ever went wrong. And Paul is emphatic that we receive this justification not by our own works, but by faith. Three times in verse 16, three times if you look at it there in that verse, he highlights that this justification comes by faith. First, he said in verse 16 that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Then secondly, he said we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Belief is faith. And third, he said again that we are justified by faith in Christ. Now, some people try to claim that faith is somehow a work that we're doing before God. It's not. It's trust in the work of God through the gospel. It's a belief. It's not the work for which God is waiting. As my friend Richard Samino wrote, faith is not a work that earns us salvation, it's the channel through which salvation is received when God made his promises to Abraham that he would bless him and make a great nation out of him and bless the world through him, Abraham, it says, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What Paul is saying is that you can only really be justified before God that way by having faith in Christ's work, to trust, to believe, to hold it to be true, to lean your weight upon it. The only other way, And there is another way, according to Paul, to be justified is by the works of the law. Paul also mentions that three times in this one verse. What what he means is that if you execute the law without fail, without error, without sin for the entirety of your life, you could be justified that way. But Paul said it's a non starter because he said, by the works of the law, verse 16, no one will be justified. It just can't happen. We're incapable of living that kind of life. And to live in line with the gospel is to never forget this glorious truth. We stand before God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. In conclusion, when the people of Israel were taken out of their captivity in Egypt. God won many victories through all of the plagues, if you've read the book of Exodus, but there was one final miracle or final victory that God gave the people of Israel to set them free from their captivity in Egypt. And it happened at the Red Sea. You might remember the story. As Moses stretched out his hands on the staff, the rod of God, God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could pass through on dry ground. And when the Egyptian armies pursued them, chased them into that same body of water, God allowed the waters to withdraw to close upon them, ensuring freedom for God's children. They actually sang a song of celebration that day on the other side of the Red Sea. From that point on, Israel was meant to walk in line with the events of the Red Sea. When intertribal disputes arose, they needed to realize that for all their differences, all the different tribes that were there, God had chosen all of them that day. They were united as God's people at the Red Sea. When they were faced with impressive foes inside the promised land, they needed to remember who they were. They needed to be motivated by the past victory that God had given to them. They needed to be motivated by the Red Sea. And when God gave them the tabernacle system of worship, they needed to remember that this was not a way for them to earn anything from God, but to enjoy what God had already done for them. He had made them his own. They became his, so to speak, at the Red Sea. And Israel should have pushed forward in determination all because of the great and final victory that God had won for them at the Red Sea. And for us, we don't have the Red Sea. We have the Red Sea of the gospel. The great gospel message should produce a determination in us as well. To say something like, I am going to live in step with the gospel that I believe. I will unite with everyone who comes under the banner of the gospel. And I am motivated to do so because that same gospel calls me up into a better version of life. And justification only comes by faith in the gospel. So I will never trust my personal performance to gain me right standing before God, nor will I require others to perform above and beyond the gospel to get right standing with me. Instead, I will live in step with the gospel wants to live that kind of life.